Let's open God's Word this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Read this in connection with the text for this morning's sermon, Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. In my own congregation, I am preaching through the book of Ephesians, and rather than preaching the two most recent, I decided to preach the first two in the series so that you guys are not missing any sort of the context. So this morning we'll have Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2, this evening, verse 3. But in that connection, let's read the history of the establishment of the congregation in Acts chapter 19. And you'll notice there are really five main events recorded in Acts chapter 19. We will read the first four of them, the fifth being the longest, the whole account of Demetrius the silversmith and the trouble that he stirred up, but how God providentially preserved his church and allowed for Paul to continue ministering there. So let's Read the first 20 verses of Acts 19. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, And they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months. Disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when diverse were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of That way, before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that From his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So first we had the baptism of the disciples of John. Second was the preaching ministry of Paul and the confirmation of that by miracles. The third event is what follows. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, and overcame them, 
and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And that brings us to the fourth event. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds, that is, their sinful deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And then what follows is the account of Demetrius and the opposition against Paul and the work there. But now let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. The text for this morning's sermon is the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. book of Ephesians sets before us the riches of God's grace in Christ to the church that is the body and the bride of Christ. That, in a single sentence, is the main idea, the theme for this whole book. It sets before us the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ toward the church, which is his body and bride. And there are really two parts to that. On the one hand, this book emphasizes the riches of God's grace toward us. How God showers us with all manner of blessings as those who are in Jesus Christ. But then along with that, there's instruction concerning the church. Those who are the objects of this great grace of our God, the church as it's the body of Christ as it's the bride of Christ as it's chosen from out of every nation, tribe, and tongue and how it's all unified together in Christ. And the purpose of the Spirit in inspiring Paul to pen these words was was and is to impress these truths upon our hearts. You see, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul was not addressing some particular error. He's not addressing some particular weakness that was found in the congregation at Ephesus, but this is a very general epistle. An epistle in which Paul aims to emphasize how privileged we are as God's people. And that comes out immediately at the outset of the very book in the first two verses for you see there is rich instruction for us already here at the outset it's important that we have that viewpoint because the temptation for us is to suppose that these first two verses are just a formal introduction that 
There's nothing of any sort of significance here, and we could just as well pass right over these verses. But insofar as that is our mentality, it's a mistaken mentality. Because there's important instruction for us already here in the first two verses. Paul is not wasting words here when he writes what he does in these opening verses. But as with every other part of the book, these words are inspired and therefore are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for correction. And specifically, these opening two verses provide for us a sort of preview of what can be found in the rest of the book as a whole. We have here in the first two verses, in seed form, in embryo form, the truths that the Apostle Paul will expand on throughout the entire book, the entire epistle written to the Ephesians. For in these first two verses, we have instruction concerning the church. We have instruction in that Paul describes the church at Ephesus with a threefold description and thereby speaks to what every true Christian and every true congregation is and should be. And what is more, the Apostle Paul gets at the blessedness of the church, the riches of God's grace towards us as they're summarized in two words, grace and peace. Already here, he's emphasizing the blessings that we have as God's people. So with that in mind, we consider this morning Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2, using as our theme the apostolic benediction to the Ephesians, because that's really what we have here, a benediction, a word of blessing. The apostolic benediction to the Ephesians, first, the church to whom it is addressed, second, the words of blessing it contains, and third, the authority with which it is spoken. This church is addressed to the church at Ephesus, to the Ephesians. And it's worth reminding ourselves, therefore, of the beginning of this congregation and how it was established. This church was established on Paul's third missionary journey. He stopped in Ephesus at the very end of his second missionary journey. And though the people asked that he would stay there and minister to him, Paul was eager to continue his travels to get to Jerusalem, but he promised to come back. And in keeping with that, on his third missionary journey, he returns to Ephesus and really most of the details, all of the details concerning his third missionary journey all relate to his labors at Ephesus. And though Paul faced much opposition, as this chapter indicates, nevertheless, by God's grace, a congregation was established. And what is more, this congregation even became a sort of home base, a center for missionary work throughout that area, throughout Asia Minor. That's what we read of in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, when we read that, All they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So the word of God went out from the congregation at Ephesus. But now all of this is really quite remarkable when you stop and think about it. 
It's quite remarkable in light of what we read and what we know about the city of Ephesus. From the 20 verses that we read in chapter 19 alone, we see that this was a city given over to idolatry. This was a city that was full of people who practice black magic who were given over to the sin of sorcery and the idolatry associated with that. The city of Ephesus was the the center for the worship of the goddess Diana. It was in Ephesus that the great temple to Diana was built, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the significance of all of this is that from a spiritual point of view... This city looked hopeless. From our point of view, this looks like the least likely place for a congregation, for a church of Christ to be established. We would look at Ephesus and think, why would we even bother going to such a wicked city so covered in spiritual darkness? But yet, by God's grace, there's a church At Ephesus. Those two words in the text that we are considering are striking. At Ephesus. And they point us to God's sovereign grace. To the fact that he chooses his own people in eternity and powerfully, irresistibly calls them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Those two words, at Ephesus, remind us of the power of the word of God. That the gospel is indeed the power of God unto salvation. That the preaching is how he gathers his church and how he brings people to saving faith. So when we stop to think about the significance of just those two words, at Ephesus... We see how remarkable it is that Paul is now writing a letter to an established congregation there. Now we want to see more than just the fact that there is a congregation in Ephesus. We also want to see how Paul describes this church. And he describes them in a threefold way in verse 1. Paul writes in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ. They are saints, they are faithful, and they are in Christ. And we look at this threefold description recognizing that though Paul writes us about the congregation at Ephesus, really this is a description of every true child of God and every true congregation of Jesus Christ. So that what can be said of the congregation at Ephesus can be said of the congregation here in Linden, Washington. First of all, you are saints. It's rather striking that Paul begins there. Because the reality is that we do not always feel so saintly, do we? Perhaps on account of our sinfulness, we would hardly even dare apply this term to ourselves that I'm a a saint. But yet that's how Paul speaks to the saints in Ephesus, to the 
the members of that congregation and to the congregation as a whole. And it's for that very reason that we reject the Roman Catholic teaching regarding saints and what makes a saint that you have to be some special person and you have to have lived to a certain threshold of holiness and then the church will declare you to be a saint. Away with that notion. That's an unbiblical idea of a saint because the reality is all of God's people are truly saints. But that raises the question, what does it mean to be a saint? What's the idea here? Well, a saint, very literally, is one who's been set apart. That's the meaning. That's the idea of the word saint. One who is separated, who has been made distinct from others. And that was true, very literally, of the saints at Ephesus. We read of that in Acts chapter 19. We read how when Paul went there and was preaching in the synagogue and there was opposition to his preaching, we read in Acts chapter 19 verse 9 that when diverse were hardened and believed not but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he, Paul, departed from them, the unbelieving Jews, and separated the disciples and went instead to the school of one Tyrannus. And we see that They were set set apart ultimately from sin and unbelief unto God. Because when Paul separates them there in verse 9, they're ultimately being separated to the preaching, to the word of God and thus to the worship of Jehovah God. And that included being separated, set set apart from all manner of sin. We see that in the subsequent verses how they burned those books of sorcery and black magic. They stopped worshiping at the temple of Diana, so much so that Demetrius began to feel it in his pocketbook. These members of the congregation were living in Ephesus, but they were not of Ephesus. They were distinct. They were saints. And all of that points to a deeper separation that had already occurred, a a spiritual separation, a spiritual cleansing. What stands behind the the outward separation is the inward. The fact that they'd been cleansed from the pollution, from the guilt of sin. That their sins were forgiven for Jesus' sake, that they were now righteous in Him. They'd been cleansed from the pollution of sin from the corruption, the depravity of sin, so that they were no longer dead in their sins, but alive in Jesus Christ. The first of all is how Paul describes the congregation at Ephesus and thus this congregation as saints. Second, the churches, those who are the faithful, that is, the churches made up of believers. Paul continues, he says, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful, that is, those who believe, those who trust in Christ. That's how we're to understand that. That is, we are to understand that word faithful in the active sense of the word rather than the passive sense of the word. When we speak of someone as faithful in the passive sense of the word, we're talking about someone who's Reliable, someone who is dependable. You can count on that person because he's faithful. That's the passive idea. 
The active idea is faithful in the sense of someone who has faith, the faculty of faith, and exercises that faith, someone who believes. And that's the idea here. And that's really what it means to be a Christian. That's what makes us who we are. That's the fundamental idea of being a Christian, not someone who comes to church, not someone who lives by a certain moral code, not someone who reads their Bible and prays all of those things are true of a Christian. But that fundamentally is not, none of those things are fundamentally what make us a Christian. What makes us Christians is that we believe in our Savior Jesus Christ, that we know him to be the Son of God in human flesh, that we trust in him for our salvation. That's a Christian. And that's how Paul describes the church at Ephesus as those who are saints, as those who are faithful, that is, who believe in Jesus Christ. And third, as those who are in Christ, as those who are united to him. It's the very end of verse 1. To the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus here. And And now when Paul speaks of the faithful in Christ Jesus, he is not putting the faithful with the Christ Jesus so that Christ is the object of our faith. That is true, that he is the object of our faith. But that's not the point here. Rather, the words in Christ Jesus really apply to both the fact that we believe and to us being set apart. The fact that we are saints and the words in Christ are pointing at our union to Christ. The fact that we've been engrafted into him so that there's a a connection between us and Christ. We've been joined to Jesus Christ. There's a a vital spiritual union that's been formed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul brings this up, the fact that we are in Christ, united to him, because it's our union, on account of our union, that we then receive all the blessings of salvation. The fact that we are saints. The fact that we've been given the gift of faith. Both of those things are true exactly because we've been united to Christ. These blessings of sanctification and faith flow from our union with Christ. And that applies to the blessings we'll talk about in the second point of the sermon. Grace and peace. Those likewise come to us in and through Christ and our union with him. And thus this is really beautiful and remarkable description that we could be that it could be said of us that we are in Christ that we are now partakers of his life and all the blessings of salvation that are found in him so a threefold description saints faithful and in Christ and now looking at these we might wonder Why does Paul, by inspiration, put them in this order? That is, what is the relationship between these three things, being a saint, being faithful, and being in Christ Jesus? Why does he start where he does? 
Well, Paul starts, he begins with what's on the surface. What can be seen in the way that we live our lives? We are saints, we're distinct, we live separately from the world around us. We live antithetically. And from there, Paul then backs up, as it were, he, he digs a little deeper. Or what explains the fact that we live this life of sanctification? Well, the fact that we've been given faith. Because that Christian life flows from our faith, that proceeds from our faith, that arises out of the faith that we've been given for. It's when we live by faith that we then walk in God's precepts. But not content to leave it there, Paul then goes a step back even further. And where does this faith come from? Why is it we believe? Well, because we've been united to Jesus Christ, because the Spirit has engrafted us into Christ so that there is that vital union through which all these blessings flow. So Paul is starting on the, what's on the, with what's on the surface and backing his way up. And he'll continue to do that because in verses 4 through 6, he'll point us to the ultimate source of these things, to our election and the fact that God chose us in eternity. That's the relationship between these things. That's the explanation for the specific order that we see here. And that too has application for us. Because it's in light of that that we must face the question, as those who are united to Christ, as those who believe in Christ, does that show Does it manifest itself on the surface of our lives? You see, the saints at Ephesus stood out. It was obvious to the whole city who this group of Christians were. They were different. They they lived their lives in an altogether different way. Is that true of us? Can others in the community around us a reformed community it may be, may they, can they tell that we are different, that we've been set apart? In other words, does our faith, does our union with Christ manifest itself in our lives? May God give us the grace to live that way. And he will give us that grace. Because that's part of the whole point of these opening verses. That there is grace and peace for us. Those are the words that make up this apostolic benediction, this word of blessing. So we've considered the church to whom this apostolic benediction is addressed. And now we want to look at the specific words that make up this benediction. And as I said in the introduction briefly, a benediction is literally a A word of blessing. And there are really two words of blessing that are contained in this one benediction. Paul says in verse 2, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Two terms that we are so familiar with that we are tempted to just pass right over them without 
stopping, consider the significance of why Paul says, Grace and peace be unto you. Because they are, it's important that we do stop with, at them because they are indeed significant. So significant that Martin Luther, in one of his commentaries, said, quote, These two words, grace and peace, do contain in them the whole sum of Christianity, end quote. The whole sum of Christianity in two words. First of all, grace. And grace here is not talking so much about God's attitude of undeserved favor toward us, but the emphasis is really on his spiritual power, the strength that he gives to his people. So that we could put it this way, it's really his undeserved favor in action. That's what Paul is talking about when he speaks of grace. It's his freely giving loving kindness in operation. That's grace, and we need God's grace. We need it because we're sinners. And that too is going to come out in this book. The Apostle Paul will go on to describe us as those who were spiritually dead. Those who walked only ever according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the the way of the wicked world and according to the lusts of the flesh. That was me and that was you from a spiritual point of view apart from grace. And thus what we deserve on account of our sin is not God's favor, his loving kindness, but what we deserve is his judgment. We are by nature children of wrath according to Ephesians chapter 2. And so how wonderful That God gives us, first of all, grace. That he gives us forgiving grace. So that all of my sins are washed in the blood of Christ. So that all the times I've failed to live distinctly, antithetically from the world around me, those sins are likewise forgiven. And he gives me not only forgiving grace, he gives me transforming grace. He gives to us the, the life of Jesus Christ. He implants that into our hearts. And then he, he actuates that life. He, he, he empowers us to live in such a way that we can make a small beginning in this life of new obedience, of living distinctly, separately from the world around us. He gives us preserving grace. So that we continue in the faith, even when that opposition comes. So that our faith does not fail, even when the Demetriuses of this world rise up and persecute the church. He gives us grace. Second, he gives us peace, writes the Apostle Paul by inspiration. Grace be to you and peace. And peace here refers to that inner peace of heart and mind that comes from knowing we now have peace with our God. In other words, peace here is referring to a quiet and a joyful conscience that comes from knowing we are now right with our God, that we've been reconciled back to our God. 
And such peace is quite something exactly because we did not always have such peace. Because the reality is that by nature we were at enmity with God. We stood opposed to God. We had allied ourselves with the devil and Adam. We were at war with God, but yet, well, and then on account of that, because there was no peace with God, there could be no peace within. Because the conscience would ever accuse us, reminding us there is a God who must be served. And because you are not serving Him, because you are not worshiping this God, you deserve judgment. There could be no peace within when there was no peace with God, but yet, by His grace, God has reconciled us to Himself. Exactly because we are the objects of His grace, we now have peace. You see, the grace that comes first is the cause of the peace. In other words, the peace is the effect of the grace. Because it was in His grace and by His grace that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die for our sins, to reconcile us back to the Father so that we might have peace with our God. That peace is quite something. Because peace means more than the cessation of war. It's not merely rest and quiet. But peace here means that we who were God's enemies are now his friends. Whereas before there was fighting, now there's fellowship. Instead of constant quarreling, there's now covenantal communion. That's peace with God. And from that peace with God comes peace within. So that though my conscience does accuse me on account of sin, Though, my, though the devil is always reminding me of the sins of youth and all the thousands of dollars squandered on those books of sorcery and black magic, there can be that inner calm, that quiet, knowing I'm right with God. And therefore I can have peace within, joy even, on account of the assurance of Salvation, that's peace. Now where does this grace and peace come from? It comes from the triune God. And that too is a part of the text. For Paul writes, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul writes grace and peace from, that word from is indicating the source, where these things come from, really from whom they come to us, and they come to us from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to say from the triune God. We have the Father and the Son on the foreground. From God our Father, that is the one who adopted us, the one who made us his sons and daughters on the basis of Christ's saving work. And then he adds, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our mediator and our redeemer, the one in and through whom all these blessings come to us. And 
No, the Holy Spirit is not explicitly mentioned here in these first two verses. He is here. Because the Apostle Paul writes grace and peace to you, that is, unto you. And if we ask, well, how are grace and peace ever going to come from the Father and the Son unto us? Well, the answer is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Because that's his role in salvation. He takes what's found in the Father as the source and what's stored up in the Son as the treasury and he applies them unto us. He, he, he delivers them to our hearts and souls so that the Holy Spirit is indeed in view already in verse 2 so that we can say that these blessings come to us from the triune God. And they come to us in part by way of having them pronounced upon us. Because that ultimately is what we have here when the Apostle Paul writes the way that he does in verse 2, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a pronouncement. He's not merely expressing his wish and desire that God would give these things. He's not even praying, God grant grace and peace, but he's pronouncing them upon the congregation. The same way, for example, that the Old Testament patriarchs would pronounce some blessing upon their sons or their grandchildren. It was not a mere wish. But according to God's will, that those words of blessing that came from the patriarchs were effectual. And that's what we find here in this verse. And really, we find this at both the beginning as well as the end of this book. This book is bookended with such words of blessing. We see this at the outset in Ephesians 1 verse 2. And we see this at the very end as well. Chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. Chapter 6, verses 23 and 24 Peace be to you, to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And this is characteristic of the way the Apostle Paul writes his epistles by inspiration. He begins with the word of blessing and he ends with the word of blessing. Two benedictions on either end of everything that comes in between. And the significance is exactly because this is a a word of blessing from God himself being spoken through the Apostle Paul. So that it's ultimately God himself in Christ pronouncing this blessing. Grace and peace be unto you. That was the word spoken through this letter to the congregation at Ephesus. And that's the word spoken to this congregation every single Sunday. Because our worship service likewise begins and ends with a word of blessing. It begins that way. When the minister raises his hands and says, Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from 
God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. We're taking those words right from Scripture. Now, it's true, we have the word mercy, but that's because when Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, he likewise adds the word mercy. So we're using the fuller expression. And by adding the words, by the Holy Spirit, we're merely making explicit what we've already seen is implied here in this word of blessing. These things come to us by the Holy Spirit, via his work. And so we have that word of blessing, that benediction at the outset of the service. And we have the same thing at the end of the worship service. When the minister again raises his hands and says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Those words are taken right from the end of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, the the closing benediction Paul uses there. And the point that we're making is that all of this is following the pattern that we see in Scripture. And as churches, we are very deliberate in this, even if we've forgotten that this was what's going on, if we've forgotten that this is why we end and be- begin and end the worship the way that we do, this is the reminder. Our worship is patterned after what we find in Scripture. And it's really beautiful when you stop to think about it. That the first thing we hear from God as He ushers us into His presence is that He breathes these blessings upon us. And then before we exit the sanctuary, Lest we still have any doubt in our hearts and our minds whether we have his blessing, he pronounces them a second time. It's wonderful to hear these words, so wonderful that from a certain point of view, in a certain sense, If there was no other word from God throughout the whole worship service, if the only thing we heard from God in the worship service was grace and peace at the beginning, grace, love, and communion at the end, and we receive those words by faith, we could go home being with our hearts full. We could go home having been fed. And it's in light of the significance and the importance of those opening and closing benedictions that we're led to see how sad it is that most often we probably pay little to no attention to those opening and closing benedictions. Did the words even register this morning? When the minister raised his hands and said, Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. This is a good reminder for all of us. A good reminder for ministers. A minister may never say those words thoughtlessly. But he must declare them full of meaning. And as a congregation, we need to receive those words by faith. 
And that means anticipating those words, being ready to hear them. And that's a small part of the reason why it's good that we are here at church at least a little while before the worship service begins so that we can prepare our hearts, so that we're looking forward to that word of of our God spoken to us through the minister, grace and peace be unto you. So may God use this as a reminder for all of us both to say and to hear with new meaning the benedictions that are pronounced from God himself. And we must indeed receive them as coming from God because that is the authority with which they are spoken. Thus far that's been assumed throughout this sermon. Now in the third point we make that explicit that These words, this benediction is spoken with the authority of God himself. And that, too, is part of the text, as is evident from the very beginning in verse 1, in the way Paul refers to himself. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul here is speaking with apostolic authority, as one who was indeed an apostle. And he was an apostle exactly because Christ commissioned him to this office and sent him out. Paul was not an apostle because he decided one day, I want to be an apostle. Nor did he usurp this office to himself. Nor was he even installed into this office by a lawful election, put up for nomination and then chosen by a majority vote and then put into office. That's not how you become an apostle. But instead, one becomes an apostle only when Christ himself appears to that one. The resurrected Christ and Christ himself commissions such an individual to go and speak on his behalf. That was Paul's experience. And all this was according to the will of God. He adds that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. This was God's plan and purpose that Paul would so testify of him. Paul speaks of this in Galatians 1 verse 15 where he writes, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. This was God's will for Paul's life. And it was exactly because he was an apostle that Paul then could speak with apostolic authority. He's functioning here as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, as the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ. He's the official representative sent on behalf of Christ to bring this word of blessing. And that has implications. That has implications for the book as a whole. Though we can speak of Paul as the human writer here, these are not ultimately his words. These are not his opinions. This is not just the wisdom of the Apostle Paul here in the book of Ephesians, but this is the word of Christ himself to his church, the church throughout all ages. That applies to the opening two verses. So that it's not Paul raising his hand saying grace and peace, but it's Christ speaking those words in and through Paul. So they carry authority. They carry weight. 
And that applies for us as well. When an, or, when an ordained minister likewise pronounces that blessing. For our ministers are likewise put into their office ultimately by Christ. And now yes, we do have a lawful election where Reverend Rignaris had his name put on a trio from among that trio. His name was chosen. The congregation extended a call to him and God led him to accept that call. So he is now our minister. But though there's a process involved, it's ultimately the spirit of Christ directing that entire process. Christ calls ministers in and through the church so that when a minister receives that external call, he can receive it as Christ himself saying, this is my will for you. This is the will of God. And Christ himself is ultimately putting that man into office when he's ordained. And again, that has implications. It means that the minister then likewise functions as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, as the mouthpiece who speaks on behalf of Christ as an official representative. And again, that applies to the preaching, but it applies to the opening and the closing benedictions. We are to receive those as being, as carrying authority, as being the words of Christ himself to the congregation. And that's the whole significance of the minister raising his arms the way he does. If I was coming here as a seminary student, and it's my understanding you had seminarian Kerner here not that long ago, if I was here in that same capacity at the end of the worship service, I would have to say, let us pray, and we would all bow our heads, and I would be praying that God grant the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Ghost. But as one who's been put into the office, as a minister, I raise my arms. Reverend Ignatius raises his arms and pronounces those blessings upon the congregation. That's the significance. And so, beloved congregation, to the saints at Linden, faithful in Christ Jesus, you may know and be assured that God himself grants you grace and peace. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for all the tremendous blessings which thou dost give unto us. And we pray that thou wilt make us truly thankful, fill our hearts with gratitude this morning knowing that we are so richly blessed in Jesus Christ. Hear this prayer for his sake. Amen.